feels like fire I'm so in love with you Dreams are like angels They keep bad at bay, bad at bay Love is the light scaring darkness away yeah. I'm so in love with you purge the soul make love your That is my contribution to Power Ballad Friday, the power of love, not to be confused with Huey Lewis or Celine Dion's song, the same name. Didn't even realise until I did my research. You listen to UK band Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It was their third straight hit, released as a single from the album Welcome to the Pleasure Dome in November 1984. It went straight to number one, just like Relax, which was banned by the BBC and Two Tribes. Terrible timing, though. After just one week, it got knocked off the top spot by the charity single Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. <laughs> the Power of Love was a top ten hit here in New Zealand, Australia, Canada and several European countries. Um, four of the five band members wrote the track, including Holly Johnson, who's quoted as saying, I always felt like the Power of Love was a record that would save me in this life. Isn't that great? There is a biblical aspect to its spirituality and passion. The fact that love is the only thing that matters in the end. Now, the reason I chose it, I lived in the UK in the mid-1980s. I was among Frankie Goes to Hollywood's most devoted fans. I love the drama, I love the theatre, I adore the lyrics, and that song is playing at my funeral. Uh, so there we go. Chris, you were listening intently. I actually thought, all oh, that wonderful orchestral sound, you might quite like that. Oh, I did, but I was putting myself in the position of Radio New Zealand's management because years ago I acted for the Recording Industry Association uh, and they had a go at one of the radio stations because little clips 
were taken from a number of songs, like, for example, Bridge Over Troubled Waters and so on. I think it was Classic FM. And the radio station ended up paying thousands of dollars. So if I were management in Radio New Zealand, I'd be listening to two and a half minutes and saying, what is she doing? Our profit's going to go. We'll be paying enormous sums of money for a song that's still in contract. I knew uh, I was, was going to get in trouble for playing so much. I just couldn't pay 30 seconds. Lana, do you agree with me? And I won't hold it against you if you don't, honestly, that that's a hell of a power ballot. No, that is a power ballot. They're from Liverpool, weren't they? Yeah, I think they were. Yeah, that, that, that's a beautiful song. And I think now record companies are a bit more switched on when they um, schedule songs, songs to be released at the same time as Christmas songs because you'll always get bopped off. And there's nothing worse than that as an artist, surely. Oh, I love this. Prakash has just texted to say, brilliant, Frankie, just got goosebumps. Me too, Prakash, thank you very much. It's 25 to 5 on the panel. Well, 100 million women take the birth control pill each day, but the authors of a new study say there's been little research into the psychological impact this has, and it might be reducing women's motivational drive to achieve. A world-first University of Melbourne study of about 280 women suggests those not on the pill experience a six times uh, higher motivation boost around the time of ovulation. One of the study's authors, Lindsay Arthur, is with us now. Good afternoon, Lindsay. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Well, first of all, that was a very rapid-fire explanation of your study, which I know you've worked hard on. What are the key findings here, and what were you looking for? Yeah, so good question. So what we did is called a diary study. So we asked women across the entire menstrual cycle to answer a short number of questions for as many days as possible. And what we found was that naturally cycling women, which is women that are not using a hormonal contraceptive, experienced a peak in self-development competitiveness, which I'll explain in a second, um, around the time of ovulation. But hormonal contraceptive users didn't experience that same peak. Um, and this the idea of self-development competitiveness um, relates to aspects of um, achievement motivation. So things like enjoying opportunities where you can test yourself or get better at things. What got you thinking about this? Because what you're saying is that this hasn't really been looked in. The, the, the pill itself, so much research over the years, but this particular aspect had not been. Yeah, there's a lot that looks at um, clinical effects. So things like um, depression and anxiety. And there is some research that looks at um, the way that uh, contraceptives interact or um, affect things like mating competitions. So, for example, whether or not we um, compete for the same same kinds of mates or if our behaviour changes to be more or less um, competitive for mates. But um, what I wanted to look at was whether or not it affected more broad competitive motivation and desire to achieve. Were you surprised at the findings indicating that, well, effectively, if I read it correctly, this competitive drive is suppressed in women on the pill? Because I I can tell you right now there will be women screaming at the radio or their MP3 of choice at the moment um, who who don't like the sound of this at all. Um, So it's important that what um, we clarify that there wasn't a difference overall between hormonal contraceptive users and naturally cycling women when we talk about competitiveness. What there was was a difference in the variation. So only naturally cycling women experienced this peak in um, self-development competitiveness or just achievement motivation, to put it more simply. Um, so it's more that naturally cy- uh, hormonal contraceptives flatten women's um, competitiveness across the cycle. 
Are you hearing any concerns about what this research might mean? I'm thinking there could be employers listening to this who might Mm. find it, as if we need another reason, some kind of disincentive for employing women. Yeah, definitely. I think it's certainly something that we need to um, be really careful about. And, you know, hormonal contraceptives are very safe. um, And I think it's really important that when we're talking about women's research, I don't believe that conducting research in female populations um, should be damaging for women. I actually think the opposite, that this kind of research helps us understand more about women's bodies and brains, and that gives us further areas for research. Stay on the line, if you would, Lana, I'll bring you into the conversation. Any questions? Yeah, oh God, I don't even know where to begin. I'm a, I am grateful that the um, the research has been done and that you have you have found stuff. What, my my question would be, um, I'm just thinking, you, you know, hormonal contraceptives in, in general have they changed a lot in the past? Because I'm going back to when I was with a lot of people who would who would be on them, and I can think of straight away people who you're right, they're in your findings of you know not feeling as you know as competitive, etc. Has have they changed over the years in terms of what they're made up of? Yeah, definitely. And there are so many different kinds of contraceptives, um, you know, different doses of the synthetic hormones, um, as in different volumes of them, um, different kinds. So, yeah, it's definitely true that things have changed a lot. And you make a really good point. It's not true that for everyone, the experience of contraceptives is the same. So some women are probably listening to this thinking, this is my exact experience. Um, I experienced that it really changed um, my psychology or um, the way I felt, but other women might be thinking this had absolutely no effect on me and the contraceptive's been great. It really is very variable from person to person. Yeah. Lana, you can throw in another question. To make that research. You can throw in another question if you want. Um, yeah, I could honestly talk to you for days, so I, I, I will keep it short. Um, are you hoping to, to continue more research on, onto this and are you what are you hoping comes out of this in terms of, you know, the, the future for females and, and where we can go to from here that are on, on the contraceptive pill? Yeah, so what I really want to see is women have more information so that they can just make informed decisions. I am absolutely not of the opinion that people shouldn't take contraceptives. They're a very safe and effective drug. Um, but lots of um, medications have side effects and the important thing is just understanding what they are so that we, we can make an informed decision for ourselves. You were working with, I think, something like 300 women, um, Lindsay. Are you going to delve further into this research? Yeah, we're still collecting data on this study, um, so not this, these particular measures anymore. We've moved into, um, we're trying to look at behaviour now, so what are the kinds of behaviours that are impacted, beha- competitive behaviours, um, so that we can answer some more of those questions, which is like, okay, so motivation changes, but how does behaviour actually change, which is what really matters. And it might be that it doesn't. We just don't know the answer yet. Mm. Very good. Yeah. I mean, some of the, if, if you were the kind of study where you could talk to the women about it, you said there was a diary. So do you feel that you've got all the information that, you know, the best quality information that you need? There was definitely advantages in the way we did the study because we look at change across um, the cycle for different people. We didn't do diaries in the sense that um, we didn't, interact with the people it was more like a just a yes no or strongly agree strongly disagree kind of survey i would love to speak to more women um, and just understand more about their um, their experiences to unpack this a little bit more i think that 
there's just so much we don't know that more research, all the different ways, can only be a good thing. And making that point also, of course, that the pill enables so many women to be able to work, right? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's so important. You know, um, the the differences that we observed in our study were small. They were there, but they were small. Whereas the difference between having reproductive autonomy and the right to choose is is so important. Um, And that shouldn't be pushed to the wayside. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Lindsay Arthur, researcher. Uh, lots of feedback coming in on this. We'll try and share it with you, but we've also had other feedback. We've just got a moment before our next story. Um, the backup singer, several of you have told me via text, thank you very much. The backup singer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Paul Rutherford, now lives on Waiheke Island. I feel oh. a visit. I feel a visit coming on or, or some <laughs> kind of tracking down. Um, and Because uh, several people have told me, so I believe it to be true. And another listener says that song, The Power of Love, is my all-time favourite song. It is amazing. Thank you so much. Margaret's been in touch. We talked to Bernard Hickey just before the news saying, don't stress about negative equity. And Margaret suggests, I think first-home buyers and then first and then single homeowners should have government regulation to protect their home ownership from mortgagee sales. People who own multiple houses are in business. If they fail to run their business safely, then they need to be free to experience the market forces that they have thus profited from hugely. So no protective regulation for them. Multiple house owners have been very keen on no regulation. Now there is a chance to embrace it. Investors are in a completely different category from people who are just trying to have somewhere safe and good to live. Um, Chris, some more feedback from your I've been thinking, by the way. Chris, I said turn off the notifications and only look up the texts and emails when you want to and put the phone on do not disturb when you don't want to be disturbed. You're going to take that to heart, are you? Yes, I thought it was very sound advice. Very good. And uh, and it's a physical exercise. They agree, totally agree. But my 23-year-old daughter would do no more than walk to work for a coffee and suffers from depression constantly. She uh, will not do more exercise than she is. I'm probably of an age similar to you, of course, um, not 23, and we don't understand. That's from Teresa. <laughs> any any hope for Teresa <laughs> to encourage her less out, out and about? No. Uh, ultimately, it becomes a question of self-choice, and people need to make their own decisions and suffer the consequences, I guess. And one more text yeah. on the Finnish Prime Minister. Lots of love coming in for her. It says, the Finnish Prime Minister has a stressful job running a country whose neighbour has invaded another neighbouring country. If she wants to have a private party with her friends and let off some steam, good on her. There are worse ways of dealing with stress. Um, the the flack that she's getting feels like misogyny to me. So look, thank you so much for all your feedback coming in. It is quarter to five on the panel. Burnout and bullying is high in our early childhood centres, according to a new survey released today. The New Zealand Early Childhood Educator and Kohangareo Haora Health and Wellbeing Survey came out this morning, putting numbers to what we've been hearing from many people in the ECE sector. To discuss these findings further is the manager of an early childhood centre, Dana Harris. Kia ora, Dana. Kia ora. How's your day been in the early yes. childhood centre today? I hope it's been a good one. <laughs> yes, it's been a good one. It's been a good one. A third of the respondents in the study reported experiencing bullying. Does this figure surprise you in any way? Unfortunately, no. When I read that, I was not surprised at all. Um, I'm very lucky to be in a position where I work for one of the better ECU centres um, in the Waikato or in New Zealand. Um, and unfortunately, I've watched bullying unfold time and time again and more and more every year. Um, 
for example, just this week, I interviewed a teacher for a position with us. Um, and she was talking about how in her third year of teaching, she was on to her 10th centre manager within the, within the organisation. She was being bullied by her teammates, her managers, um, and she was just so desperately looking for a centre where she could be a teacher without the, the politics, I guess, that come with that. So unfortunately, no, that doesn't surprise me at all. There's another statistic really concerning. 25% of those surveyed reported being subjected to physical violence from Tamariki they're supporting. This again in minimal staffed centres. What do you make of that? I think that those children um, are seeking comfort and connection. Um, I think that this is this potential of violently lashing out is them really clearly communicating to their teachers that, hey, I need some engagement, I need some play, I need a cuddle. Um, I need to feel safe with you right now. Um, and I think what we need is we need the government to lower the ratios um, with better funding that actually covers the cost of doing so. Um, I mean, these children that we have now are living in a world, they've never known a world without COVID. Um, you know, coming back into ECE, all they want is a cuddle or some one-on-one time Um and they're not getting that with the ratios that the government are currently providing. So I think, um, you know, it's their way of communicating and they're telling us a very strong message. Well, that we should look at the minimum um, staffing ratios. What are they currently? Yeah, so um, one teacher could have five infants up to the age of two. That's anywhere from six weeks old. Um, and a teacher could have up to 10 two-year-olds in their care. So one to 10 for over twos and one to five for under twos. So you could, in theory, have 40 children mm-hmm. and four teachers. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those responsibilities of teachers, say? Because it's not just in the classroom, by any means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not just teaching and learning. That is the highlight of our role. But with a, a young child comes with a lot of care. So, you know, they need three meals a day. They need up to five nappy changes a day. They need their bottles um, to make sure that their bag's packed, that there's art going home, that there's all of those children's parents need an in-depth handover morning and night. Um, Yeah, there's so much that goes into just one child. So having 40 in a room with, say, four teachers, it's... um, it's pretty impossible at some at some stages, yeah. And given the sickness, COVID over the last couple of years, staff shortages all over the country, it feels like, how hard has it been to actually maintain even those minimum ratios? Can a centre open if they don't have the minimum number of staff? Yeah. Legally, no, they shouldn't. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if over the last year or so that some centres have had to. Again, luckily for me, I work at incredible centre where we uphold lower than ministry ratios but there's no budget there for that that's coming um, straight out of pocket but I think that yeah it's hard to call on relievers we've seen more sickness than ever our teachers are so sick and run down Um, when they call in sick you're desperately trying to find relief staff and often that means your your office lady that's trying to do the invoices and your chef that's trying to cook meals are all on the floor with you everyone's hand on deck to make sure that it's legal to to operate, yeah. 
course, we're talking about the stress on staff, Dana, mm-hmm. but what about the implications for the children? Because you mentioned before, a lot of these mm-hmm. young ones have only known COVID, they've known masks, they've known sickness, yeah. they've known isolation, suspicion, for heaven's mm-hmm. sake. I mean, I can't imagine growing up, and most of the, the grown-ups I see are wearing mm-hmm. masks. Yeah. And, and I remember you know, going out for walks and even trying to smile at children mm-hmm. and realising they, they don't see you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's quite a different environment. So there's going to be some psychological mm-hmm. um, help required. So mm-hmm. if these ratios aren't addressed, what are your concerns for the young ones? Yeah, long-term, massive, massive concerns. We're working with children that, like you say, are completely lacking a big part of their brain development that they need to function. Um, we are really worried about, you know, the lack of connection that children are seeing. There's been all these... Um, you know, notices out there that, oh, when there's COVID, don't let children in the sandpit and don't offer them Play-Doh and um, make sure you're wearing masks and parents aren't even allowed in the building to drop their children off. The children are getting handed over to maybe a stranger, a relief teacher they've never met in the car park taken from their parents. So the massive psychological defects that, that we could potentially see from this lack of human connection um, and we just want our children to grow and be really socially competent, you know, to be able to be courageous and persevere and and be able to cope in an ever-changing world. But without the basic connection and love that they need at this age, you know, that's not going to be there. Lana, what are your thoughts on this, having listened to Dana? Yeah, yeah. Look, Dana, it sounds like you're doing a great job. I've got a five-year-old who's not long just left childcare, and and I can vouch for everything that you're saying from what I've seen as a parent on the outside. And but from what from what I can see here too is that the wait lists in the future are massive. So for you, I suppose it's a case of wanting to change those ratios as soon as possible because in the distant future you can see that nothing's going to change with the numbers you're coming in. That must be incredibly frustrating. Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, it's so, we need this to change quick. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm great. I'm lucky to be working in a centre where we're a 1 to 7 rather than a 1 to 10. Um, however, you know, that's incredibly scary for the future. If we were to have to operate at a 1 to 10 or like many, many, many ECE centres are at a 1 to 10. You know, the the stretch on that for the team, the, the team aren't going to last. The staff turnover is going to be there. These children won't have predictability or consistency. There's massive wait lists for children to get into care, but without the staffing there, we can't, you know, find them spaces. It's, um, it's a vicious, like, systemic issue that's going round yeah. and round in circles and no one's fixing it. We'll just know that the parents appreciate it. We appreciate what you're doing. It's super important, actually, that that's passed on. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I thought it was a very powerful contribution, but I um, I can't see any change anytime soon. There Why? Huge bud- budgetary pressures, and the nurses need a pay rise. Uh, there are other demands right across the economy, and just for the life of me, it sounds heartless, but I just can't see that those ratios are going to change any time soon. We've got a massive debt problem in this country. Inflation's uh, out of the box. And so I just can't see um, a positive change in the near future. So I'm sorry about that. So so if you weren't in, if you were in um, Parliament at the moment, if you were Minister for Education, you wouldn't prioritise this? Oh, it's not a question of prioritising because every minister uh, has got a wish list and I'm sure lowering ECE 
uh, teacher to student ratios would be a very important one for the Minister of Education, Mr Hipkins and his associates. But the reality of the matter is we've got big budgetary pressures uh, right across the board uh, and um, so it's going to be a question of what can be achieved in the, uh, the short to medium future and I would venture to suggest nothing. Mm. That's not encouraging I, for you, Sorry Dana. to be negative, but <laughs> that's simply the way I see things, but that's not in any way to uh, diminish what you've said this afternoon and the importance of ECE. It's really interesting because I think that changing the ratios, I mean, I could happily talk to anyone about this for hours, but changing these ratios, I mean, we have staff that are saying we're all, we'll, we could all leave, you know, in, all of us, including myself, if we were all to walk off the job, um, there would be nowhere for nurses to send their children, for policemen mm. to send their children, for lawyers to send. Where are these children going to go? Oh, I've got um, no yeah. sympathy for lawyers, but I've got a lot of sympathy for nurses. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's role has a good place, but you know that we're actually the building blocks of success in this country, and without um, care for children, it's it's going to go backwards completely, even more so. I think you made a very good point about masks because we've all been covered up from one another for a couple of years now. And as you say, the human smile or even saying hello to people, uh, it's become the exception rather than what it used to be. It's, It's all pretty tragic, really. Yeah. Would you sign up for an education centre, Dana, that had that one that one to ten ratio, not the one to seven that you've got now? Would you put yourself through that? No, if I was offered a position in a centre that was one to ten, I would absolutely turn that job offer down. Yeah. Are you talking to colleagues? I mean, it sounds like you're happy in the place where you're at. Are you talking to colleagues who are genuinely suffering from burnout? And what are the consequences of that? Yeah, even in a one to seven, it's difficult. Um, You know, every year... the ministry come in and they say, here's this new book, you need to provide evidence of how you're meeting this resource. Here's this new regulation and you have to provide evidence. However, along with uh, them asking us to do more work every year, they're not funding us the hours to do so. So the paperwork pile is just incredibly massive and they're not funding us the time to do so, um, which again takes away from the children. So now children are just seeing teachers walking around doing paperwork rather than engaging in literacy and social competence, human interaction, you know, language. Um, So even in a centre where we're one to seven, teachers are burnt out. Um, We've got parents expecting more and more and more. They've raised their children in lockdowns and then sending them to an ECE centre, you know, they are um, more protective than they've ever been of their children and therefore expecting a lot. Um, they expect us to be contactable, you know, at 9pm at night saying, hey, did my child have a bottle because we're having a rough night? Or, you know, the pressure is building every year. And even at a 1 to 7, it's it's still hard. So, yeah, we have colleagues that are burnt out, for sure. Oh, I, I hear what you're saying about the mm. ministry, which I think is generally regarded as pretty useless. And mm. piling up all that regulation and paperwork on teachers is ridiculous so a a good first step may be to get some people to have a go at the ministry yeah for sure will you stay we've only got a minute or so to go dana will you stay in the profession i will (laughs) um i somehow have it in me to keep going but not everybody will or can um i 
if it gets any harder than this, though, I'm sure that myself and many others would tap out. Really no, you sound it. too good. Yeah, that's you right. Hang, good. hang in there, you. Dana. Have a go at the ministry. Dana Harris is the manager of an early childhood centre. Now, Mihinui, we really appreciate it, Dana. We've been talking about mental health and anxiety today on the panel. If you or anyone you know needs someone to talk to, you can call or text 1737. That's it from the panel today and for the week. Thanks to my panellists, Lana Searle and Chris Finlayson. Thank you, guys. Um, really love to talk to you. Our guests today, thank you very much. And for you listening, all your contributions. I've never seen so many texts. A shout-out to Ayana, Bridget and Sam who've helped me through the week. Really appreciate their support. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen next. Enjoy your weekend, whatever you have planned. Uh, Matewa, everybody.